Hello, and welcome to Bobby and Yen's presented by Zwift. One thing I'm thankful for is still being able to train with friends on Zwift any time of the day. Being motivated by the massive community means there's always someone to ride with and new locations to explore. Like the new Japanese-inspired Makuri Islands and my personal favorite route, the Mega Pretzel on Watopia. Riding with friends makes the training easier and they always know how to push me. Visit Zwift.com and I'll see you on there soon. Ride on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of Bobby and Jens. My name is Bobby Julik, and my trusty cohort, Jens Vogt. Jensi, how you doing? I'm good. And actually, to make you smile, I saved my skin for another year because only two days ago was our anniversary, 18-year married. And I did provide the flowers, so I'm good. That's funny. I didn't know that our anniversaries were so close to each other. Mine was October the 17th, so a little bit ago. And yes, I got the photos, I got the card and or the flowers in the card and a couple of other things. But uh, yeah, man, they're just clicking off. 23 years married. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. But um, man, I had a great weekend. I, I know I've mentioned this a bunch of times, but uh, we did the Hincapi Grand Fondo and it was just uh, amazing weather. Santiago Botero, um, Victor Hugo Pena, George Hincapi, Christian Vandeveld, Lance Armstrong, among others, uh, showed up for an amazing ride. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I can still ride 80 miles. I'm pretty impressed. It feels good. You know, you get done, you know, it's not the end of the world. You know, a couple years ago when I did it the first time I was cramping and I had to go home and take a nap, but, um, uh, Getting fit, you know, turning 50 here pretty soon. Got to stay fit. Well, we have quite the guest today, folks. This has to be one of the most interesting and unique stories we have ever heard here on Bobby and Jens. Juliana Buring is a female ultra endurance cyclist, a best selling writer, a race promoter, as well as a Guinness Book of World Record holder for the fastest navigation of the globe. So sit back, relax, and listen to our amazing interview with Juliana. Not going to frontier and act like we know too much about endurance cycling, but we did have James Mark Hayden as well as Lawrence Tendam on our podcast earlier in the year. We did pay attention to what Lachlan Morton, uh, Jack Thompson, Jean-Luc Perez, along with Haka Valle did during their summer in France. But we are so excited to have the best, if not one of the best, female endurance cyclists in the world here with us today. Juliana Boring, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Hi, thanks for having me on your show. Really excited to talk to you both. Well, our producer, Mark Payne, uh, has talked about you quite a bit. And um, just doing some research, I realized that this is going to be one of those interviews that could go on for a very, very long time, because you have quite an interesting story. Um, you were born in 1981 in Athens, Greece. 
and you have you consider yourself British German, but you never lived in Germany before. And throughout your life, you've lived in 30 different countries in Asia, Africa, and Europe. I mean, where do we start? I mean, there's so many good questions to ask, but uh, let's get it straight from from you. Tell us a little bit about um, your your pre-cycling days, and then we'll kick into what you do now. Okay. There's a lot to talk about before cycling. <laughs> I can give you an overview, but I would say I probably have an identity crisis. I don't really consider myself from anywhere at this point. <laughs> I've definitely lived all over. Um, I grew up, well, I was born and raised in uh, the Children of God, which was a religious cult. Uh, it came out of the 1960s, 70s, when, well, most of the religious cults sort of sprang up around the hippie era. And uh, my parents joined. I was born into it with, you know, well, no choice, as all my generation were. And um, when I was three, going on four, my parents signed me over to the group, property of the group. So I grew up randomly being kind of sent around to various communes with various foster parents in various countries all over the world. That's kind of how I ended up living in so many countries. Um, and yeah, generally in, um, uh, well, you were not the Western world, but you know, yeah, around Asia and Africa where there was less oversight, government oversight. And so, um, it was a frightening and oftentimes difficult childhood. But I think as I became an, as I grew into my adulthood and, sort of decided I wanted to find my own life path and make my own choices. I left and wrote a book which became an international bestseller, um, which also helped to bring down the group. So in 2010, they made a formal announcement disbanding um, the main structure of the group and telling everybody to go out and live normally and live in society and get jobs and let the kids go to school and be educated. So that was the goal that I had behind that. And then I worked with um, an organization which, um, well, I set up an organization which merged with this other organization called Safe Passage Foundation, which was working towards uh, helping ex-cult ex children who are born and raised in these groups to um, integrate into society, to be able to get educated, um, help them get set up, give them the resources they need to do so. Because obviously uh, when you grow up in these kind of tiny uh, microcosms of you know very shut off from the shut off shut off from the outside world and separated from what you would consider secular. Um, you kind of when you when you end up in society like normal society, you don't know how to behave, you don't know anything, you don't even know how to make a phone call, you don't exist actually on paper. You kind of a ghost, and um, you're not even in the system anywhere. So just getting set up can be really. Um, difficult, very um, frustrating. And, you know, you have no formal education, you don't uh, have a bank account, you have no money. So um, this is sort of the struggles that I went through leaving. And so I wanted to help other kids who also experienced the same to have some kind of resources to help them um, figure things out in the outside world, and not feel like so alien. Um, and yeah, after a bit of time doing that, I decided I needed to sort of build a life for myself and I kind of wanted to escape from the whole um, cult scene, which can be quite a drag. I can tell you there's a lot of negativity around that. So, and a lot of damaged people, of course, that you, um, and I needed, well, I needed to 
make life for myself. So I moved to Italy where I got a job teaching in the state schools. Um, and that was an experience on its own because, you know, I came to Italy without speaking a word of Italian. And in Naples, they don't speak Italian either. They speak Neapolitan. Um, and I was teaching in these schools with some of the most difficult kind of um, high school kids that are from the rough neighborhoods. And that was a really exciting experience. But anyway, long story short, um, that's how I ended up in Italy. And then um, I actually had never cycled in my life and started cycling um, very randomly, picked up a bicycle at 30 years old um, when the man that I was very much in love with died. And that kind of set me on the path towards cycling the world. I know it sounds dramatic, but <laughs> that's what it was. <laughs> so you cycled since uh, the age of uh, 30 and uh, quite a few achievements. And what made you pick these ultra-long endurance rides? Like like just a local crit, an hour, 40 miles, that never interested you? <laughs> I'm, ex I'm an extremist. So if I, if I do something, I do it to the most maximum extreme possible. And uh, so when I decided I wanted to cycle, um, I should give some background, but I was at the memorial of this man and he was a south african explorer he was a kayaker he was exploring some of the most unknown rivers in the congo when he died he was taken underwater by a crocodile and uh and i was in such a emotionally dark place um i think i had lost so many people growing up and suffered a lot of abandonment and loss and i always found a way to bounce back but in this case, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't find a way to bounce back. And uh, so I realized I had to do something drastic to force myself out of this, um, this, this slump, this pain, this depression that I was in. So um, it was at the memorial that some, that one of the, one of our mutual friends was talking about wanting to cycle across Canada. And she She said, um, well, do you want to join me? We can go cycling across Canada. And then I thought about it. I was like, I'm not really interested because I've already driven across Canada. I've seen it. And, but it got me thinking, if I ever was to cycle somewhere, where would I want to cycle? So I started to go online and look at long cycling journeys and came across Mark Beaumont, who had cycled the world for the record. And then all the other people who had cycled around the world. And I was like, whoa, that would be amazing to cycle around the world. I mean, if you're going to cycle a continent, you might as well just keep going, right? <laughs> so then I, it then came, a, I stumbled across the fact that no woman had done it yet. And I was like, that's very odd. It's 2011. How has there not been a woman cycle the world yet? Well, in a complete circumnavigation. Um, so then I was like, well, I'm going to just go for it and see what happens. <laughs> so I just set off on a whim um, I learned to cycle and eight months later, I, I started my journey around the world. Um, and so, well, everyone was telling me you're absolutely crazy. Uh, you're not a cyclist. You, you don't know what you're doing. You have no money. You have no experience. You don't know how to f even change a tube. <laughs> um, and I said, well, by the time I get back, I'll be a cyclist. So by the time I got back, which I did and did come back with the record, um, I was indeed a cyclist. I could, you know, fix my bike and change my tubes and, um, became very good at crashing and 
definitely messed up my knees a lot. And uh, I realized, though, that I could sustain a good pace doing a lot of mileage in a day by that point. So and then I got into ultra cycling races because of Mike Hall, who was, well, he's an ultra cycling legend. And he started the first big kind of unsupported bikepacking race across Europe called the Transcontinental Race. And that was in 2013. And he approached me because he was the fastest man to cycle the world. And I was the fastest woman. And he said, I need, I need women to come and join this, this race. And I was like, I'm not a racer. I've never raced in my life. I'm not even that fast. I just know how to do a lot of miles. And he was like, listen, you've done it around the world. Like how hard can a continent possibly be? <laughs> so he convinced me. Um, and I, I mean, the first, the first real big sort of bikepacking race, the transcontinental, the very first edition really wasn't so structured or it wasn't even so much of a race as it was just a bunch of us sitting around saying, let's all ride as fast as we can to Istanbul and have beers at the end. Right. So literally what it was, was just a big adventure. Everyone made their own way. You hit a few checkpoints um, and it's like race you to the end for beer. That's what it was. Um, And then, you know, at the end we just sat around with beers and told stories and that was what it was. There was no kind of glory behind it or anything. Um, but that was my first experience of pushing myself a little further than I thought I, I could go. And um, instead of, you know, 200 kilometers a day, I, I, I think it was the first time I, I did up to 400 a day. And I was like, wow, I can do 400 in a day. Like, who knew? <laughs> and so then that got me really interested. Then I was like, what else am I capable of? Like, how much further am I able to push this? So then the year after that, there was the inaugural Trans Am bike race, which Mike was also going to race. Um, and so, of course, Mike was there and a few, you know, the old crew that we all knew. So, we're all, I'm, so of course, I was like, yeah, I'm there. Um, and that was the race that, I mean, everything went wrong. It was a really long race. It was like seven, over 7,000 kilometers. Um, and I think the second day of that race, I crashed um cracked my ribs I blacked out and um but I I wasn't gonna stop with this I got too far to stop I've got a problem with my brain not being able to quit when I should it's probably not a healthy thing but it has kept me going through a lot of these races so um yeah so I kept going and then the seat post broke and I couldn't get the right screw to fix it. So I rode half the last half of the race with the seat all the way down and my knees all the way up. And there was a lot of climbing. So by the end, I couldn't even walk. <laughs> everything was swollen. <laughs> my knees and my ankles and everything was swollen. Um, and the further I got, and this was the first race when a lot of people were watching, um, me kind of pushed towards the front and I think I was, I was vying with another guy for fourth position. And then all the allegations started like, Oh, it's impossible. She's cycled for two years and she's, um, you know, beating the front. She's pushing the front of these guys who have cycled their entire lives. And so then there's all the, Oh, she must be cheating. She must be doping. She must be, I don't know what all the allegations. And I was just like, give a shit. I'm just going to have a really good ride. (laughs) you all and the more that people kept trying to say that that kind of nonsense the more it drove me to be basically give everyone the finger and be like i'm just gonna have an amazing ride and show you what what uh what i can do and show myself what i can do really and so um 
yeah, the last, the last push was, I think, 36 hours. I did 800 kilometers nonstop. And that was probably the furthest I ever pushed myself. And that was painful because, um, my knees were so, so blown up. I couldn't, I couldn't put any pressure on them. But then because I was sitting so long in the position, a really bad position, uh, I had the, like a pinched nerve running all the way up from my, my leg up my back and I couldn't pedal with one of my legs. It was so bad. So I think I did the last. 100 kilometers pedaling on one leg and there was the guy who had been like zigzagging with me the whole way um he he kept saying he had his family waiting at the end and i think we we found each other on the road on the last night and we were both completely dead just we'd been riding non-stop and hadn't slept and um and i remember falling asleep on my bike and almost going into the opposite lane and a truck like on the horn like, and i whoa swerved just in time so we rode next to each other the rest of the night to keep each other awake because we were worried we were both going to fall asleep on the bike because he'd already fallen off his bike sleeping. So we ended up like shouting at each other all night, like, were you awake? Yes. Are you awake? Yes. <laughs> um, and then we got almost to the end as dawn was coming up and Mike sent me a message saying, because he'd already arrived and he sent me a message saying, you might want to let some air out of your tires. The last 20 kilometers are all cobble. And I was just like, with the pain in my back, I literally cried when he said that. I was like, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. <laughs> and, and I, but I you know letting out the air was not an issue because I hadn't blown up my tires in at least a week. So they were already almost flat. <laughs> and, uh, so the guy he looks at me and he, and he says, I'd already told him I have nothing more to prove like to myself or to anyone else. Just go for it, man. Your family are waiting. See you at the finish. You know, I'll take fifth, you take fourth. And so he took off into the sunrise and I just like, I watched him go over the crest and just like something in me just could not let it go. After all of that struggle, I was just like, Ugh. so I just took off and I got this second wind. Like this like amazing boost of adrenaline and I felt no pain. And I literally just went, I've never felt such a, such a high of adrenaline in my life. Came up to him. He looked back and he looks back again. He's like, and so then he took off. So we literally sprinted, both of us, to the end and rolled over the finish together. So we tied in at fourth place. So, um, that race was ridiculous. I couldn't walk after that. They had to wheelchair me onto the plane. But it got me super excited about the whole concept of mind and body and that the mind, when it's not ready to quit, can keep the body going, even when the body should have collapsed a long time ago. And that that whole connection for me um, became like an experiment. So, I mean, in all of my racing, I, since I was always the first woman doing it, I didn't really have any point of reference or anyone to kind of, um, show me the ropes or tell me how to do it. So I had to just figure it all out. And so I honestly learned the hard way from much of it and did a lot of damage to myself too, because obviously pushing myself too much, it was also not good. So I gotta just go back to like the beginning here. Like you, like you said, eight months, just riding on, you know, just picking up the bicycle eight months later you're doing the circumnavigation of the globe and to the people that don't know our listeners that don't know what that entails that's over twenty nine thousand kilometers or 1800 miles in total time or in total distance it took you 152 days 144 of those were actually on the bike i imagine uh those other days were spent traveling but that is just 
so such a massive undertaking for someone that has very little bike experience. Like you said, you could barely even change a flat tire. But that feat, that physical feat, after just listening to you go down, like it's that seems to be normal for you. But you said you know you you didn't have a lot of these skills, and then this isn't cheap. It's not like you're riding through and flying all these places and repairing bicycles. Did you ever add up like the amount of money that it took you to be on the road for 152 days? I mean, there had to have been um, quite a few expenses to deal with there. And 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 how did you prepare for that? Yes. Uh, well, I actually would have left much sooner, but I couldn't get a sponsor. So I was holding out, hoping that I would find a sponsor. But of course, everyone just looked at me like, yeah, who are you? <laughs> not an athlete, not a cyclist. Like basically it was doomed from the get go. So I perfectly understand it now, but at the time I was like, what's wrong with you people? And does no one want to sponsor me? <laughs> but yeah, in hindsight, it made sense. Um, so eventually I thought, well, if I just start and, and show that I'm, you know, I really am serious about this, someone will pick me up on the way, which never happened in the end. So I think I left, uh, with about 3000 euros saved from uh, my teaching and, uh, and then just, I was really obviously tightly budgeted, but almost from the get go, I, I amassed such an incredible following of, um, people online following through Facebook, through the social networks. They've just heard there's like this, this is mad chick gone off and <laughs> wants to make a record who's not a cyclist. And, um, and people started following me just out of the curiosity to see what would happen. Cause every day was a good story. Cause everything that possibly could go wrong went wrong for me and so I'm just massively entertaining I think so um people followed me uh I got all the way to New Zealand on on my limited budget because I went through um America where a bunch of people just wanted to help the people were meeting me on the road with food and putting me up for the night and sponsoring my next week of a uh, you know food and and uh, expenses and I literally did not have to pay anything in America. So that was an incredible experience. And and it, I got to New Zealand and ran out of money literally in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I think I made, I made a video. It was the night before I died. And <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the drama. I, I got lost um, because my um, my GPS died. My phone was not picking up any sort of satellite. And I didn't know quite where I was. I ended up taking the wrong, the wrong route, ended up in the middle of nowhere. And the only way out was to go over this uh, longer highway called Desert Road, which is called that because I think for 180 kilometers, there's literally nothing. And the military there use it for training because it's like a wilderness. Um, so I ended up in, in this desert and you kind of keep climbing for about 150 kilometers uh, until you reach this mountain plateau and you are at a very high altitude. And I got the, to this plateau with no food or water because there was no supplies uh, to stock up on and ended up like just as the sun was going down and there was really strong wind and there was actually warnings on this highway for trucks. The wind was so strong and I couldn't pedal anymore because it was so strong. And so I was walking my bicycle and the wind was literally lifting it off the ground. Um, and I was, got really cold because I, of course, didn't have the right kit for that kind of cold. So it still had you know, relatively light clothing from India. I'd come over from India. Um, no, sorry, not from India, um, from America where it was summer. And um, 
And so I started to get hypothermic and I was like shaking and I could hardly walk. And I didn't know how much further it was to the next civilization. Uh, and then I came across this, this camper van parked by the side of the road. And there was this little old lady with white hair, uh, washing dishes in the window. And I like banged on the window. I was like, help. <laughs> and so she and her husband, they were like, what are you doing out here in this wind and this cold? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> So they took me in and then uh, she tried to give me tea and he was like, no, he wasn't having it. He gave me some nice bourbon. So I shot, got a couple of shots of bourbon down me and I warmed up. Um, and then they said, where are you going? I told them what I was doing and they said, you're crazy. I said, I know. And then um, I asked them where, how far to the nearest town. And they were like, no, it's too far to go in this wind. You won't make it. And so they literally decided, although they were going to drive the opposite direction, 200 kilometers to stay with friends at night, they decided to park for the night and let me sleep up in the like, top bunk over there, the driver, the driver's seat. Um, and then they got me up nice and early with some, with some toast and coffee and like, set, sent me on my way. Um, so that's the kind of kindness that I experienced the whole way um, that got me around the world. But anyway, long story short, right before I got stuck there, I sent a video on Facebook telling all of my followers, thank you all so much um, for following me, for your moral support and kind um, um, kind words of encouragement the whole, the whole way. But I, I'm afraid I will have to come home because I've run out of money now and it's been fun. Thank you all. Yeah, I'm broke. I got to go home. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. I thanks. didn't even have enough money for an air, airplane ticket home, so I didn't <laughs> know how I was going to get home. But I was like, I, you know, thank you all so much. Um, and then when I got into civilization again after the desert road, uh, the first thing I did, of course, was eat a bunch of food and then um, and then checked my messages. And my bank account had a thousand euros more in it. And over that one day, a bunch of people just sent in tons of donations and tons of messages saying, no, you have to keep going. You have to finish this for all of us. We're like all invested in this with you now. Um, so nice. the rest of the way, people kept sending, you know, 10 euros, 20, 50, just a little bit, whatever they could. And that got me around the world. So, And I... I I believe, um, Juliana, you're selling yourself a little short here. You did not entertain them. You inspired them. You you gave them something to cheer. You left them in awe. You went, oh, my God, this is the best and most impressive thing I've ever seen. I think it was not the entertaining part. It was the inspiring part that you go, I don't care about the odds. I'm going to make it. And it's, it's, it's really impressive. So I think people just showed the appreciation and how thankful they were that you you basically did light up their lives. I guess that's how they saw it. Through my adventures, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's something of the adventurer in everybody. And maybe not everyone would go off and do something so crazy. But I think we have this something in us that applauds the people who do. It's in our nature to, you know, to want, you know, we like the explorers and the people who go and push the limits. And it kind of, I think... It, it inspires us just because, you know, it's the human factor that we all have this capability. Some people will try it. Some people won't. But it's in, innately in all of us. And when a normal person like me, who's not anybody interesting or talented, goes and does it, maybe it's more like everyone else says, well, you know, so she's doing it. So definitely I could do something like that. So maybe that's more like maybe they feel more like, I don't know. Um, um, my brain's thinking in Italian. <laughs> my words are something <laughs> If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up 
to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get a hard copy of Valley News magazine, choose two books a year from VeloPress, access all the premium content from the whole Outside family, including Yoga Journal, Peloton Magazine, and Backpacker. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events, as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value every year in one $99 subscription. But if you head to valleynews.com slash outside plus and enter Bobby Jens 25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout, you'll receive our special 25% discount and you make a good deal great. Talking about thinking, what are you thinking about all these countless hours on the bicycle? I mean, are you just totally drilled into staying up on the bike and eating right and drinking right? Or like what goes through your mind, especially during that race where you rode for the entire time? I mean, you're not taking a break, but I, I for a guy that whose longest ride ever was nine and a half hours, I cannot begin to fathom that you were doing that day after day after day, month after month. But what is it? What what are the things that are going through your mind during that period? First, definitely food. <laughs> One thing that will always push a cyclist to get to the next sort of point of reference is the next food stop. So you're just thinking, when I get to the next food stop, what I want to eat, what I want to drink, and it just like keeps you going that far. It's just like just 100K more and I can stop and have that ice cream, you know. <laughs> That's very motivating. Um, but I think you go through kind of because within the space of a day, you, every hour you'll go, your moods will go like crazy swings. So you from one moment to the next, you're feeling just exhausted and bored and you're hating every minute on the bike. And then the next, you'll just be crying tears of, of ecstatic joy because it's all so beautiful and wonderful. <laughs> Let's say you get to your next food stop in India. How did you ask for food and drinks in India if you don't speak the language? Or how do you do it in uh, whatever, South America, when you all speak only Spanish? How do you ask for food or certain types of food when you're in a country where you do not know a single word? How did that work? Well... One of the skills I learned from teaching kids who didn't speak English and I didn't speak their language is how to communicate without words. <laughs> I got very skilled at it. And Italians will teach you how to make all communications in one language hands. Everything is hands. So you can make yourself pretty understood. I was in Turkey. And I, and I ended up in a, in a restaurant, like on, a, I think just like a service station by the side of the road and my bike had broken down. I had just been chased by dogs, by crazy lion dogs. I think they're not dogs. They're like wolves. They, they little hunt you down because they see you like a steak on wheels and they, you, you look extremely yummy. And so I was like full of a pumped with adrenaline from this dog chase. And I pulled up to this restaurant and I was just like, and they were, they, there was a father and his son. And they wanted to know like what happened, where I'd come from. And I did the whole dog chase story with sounds and, and, and hand movements. 
and they got it. They thought it was hilarious. They were laughing at me or else they were just laughing at me because I looked so funny with my hand movements or whatever, <laughs> faces I was making. Um, but then, so, you know, they pulled up a chair for me, want to eat something. I understood they they want to eat something because they handed me the menu. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course it was all in Turkish. I didn't understand it. So I just pointed to each one and I was like, ah. and they were like, no. I was like, no, they're like, no. And I was like, Yes, has six kids, so he knows he's probably done that himself. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. I think we all have. But um, so, Juliana, we we had uh, James Mark Hayden on uh, earlier in the year, and he had nothing but great things to say about you, as does everyone that I reached out to in the, the endurance world or ultra endurance world. But he told us this story that he was super organized, that he did so much research, that he had spreadsheets and you know, that was one of the ways that he was able to beat Lawrence Tundam in, in the, the transcontinental one year. But I'm not, I'm picking up a different vibe from you. Um, do you, do you do that same research or are you just kind of like, Hey, I'm, I'm just going to go out and do it. I, I probably would do a lot better on, on races if I knew how to like actually follow a tracker. <laughs> I, just, I do not geek. I follow the sun. <laughs> Um, the transcontinental, I did every like possible diversion and, and the Trans Am race, I think I got lost at least 10 times and had to like keep, keep backtracking because I kept losing the road. Um, I'm, I am hopeless when it comes to, you know, being anal about my roots. I can't, um, I, my favorite thing in life is just to get on my bike and get lost. I can absolutely love that. And I never get really lost because I always know I have a good sense of direction. Like I literally do follow the sun. I know exactly where I am as far as west, east, north, south goes. So I can just kind of like ride and eventually I know I'm going to get there. <laughs> um, but no, like I literally have never taken the races very seriously. I, if I had, I probably could do better. <laughs> I could have done better. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think maybe it's also... I don't know if it's a difference between them, the, the approach that men and women have in these sort of events. It could be. Um, but men just tend to geek more, too. They just tend to be more technical. and um, you know. No, we're wimps. We're wimps. And women, female species are much stronger than us. So it just boils down to that. Hey, I didn't say it. Um, talking technical stuff, I actually have a question from that bike you started with your first circumnavigation around the world. How much of that bike did you bring back apart from the frame? How many parts survived the entire journey? Uh, just curious. The frame and the handlebars. <laughs> the rest got replaced and changed along the road. Fantastic. I had no idea about cycling or bicycles and Uh, I did all my training on kind of a normal tour bike and it was only like two weeks before I decided to set off that I I had a complete overhaul and decided I was going to take a road bike because I actually, I studied Michael's trip and, you know, and he went super light. He had, you know, the, the bike packing gear, all very aerodynamic and light. And I was like, Oh, if I'm going to do a lot of mileage, I need to rethink um, how I'm carrying and what I'm carrying. So I complete, I got, fortunately, the, the sponsor was giving me the other bike, was happy to change it over to a road bike, but it was completely wrong for every single reason possible. But 
not least of which all the parts were wrong. I mean, if I had gone now, I would do something completely different. I would probably ride something more like a Roubaix. Uh, but the wheels were too small for my, my, my size there. Everything was in carbon. Even the nipples were carbon and every nipple and every spoke broke on that bike. The wheels broke. I have so many flats. The tires were super thin and they're just wrong for every kind of road surface I had to go through. Um, and you know, the shifter was, I broke immediately. I didn't even know how to change gears properly. So I literally wore down the, um, the, um, what do you call it? Uh, Where the chain runs through. The cassette. I, I, I wore down everything. I had to change literally everything. I had to change the pedals twice too. Um, and then, of course, there's the whole factor of not knowing how to sit on it properly because I, I was in a different position. I wasn't used to road bike position. So I crashed, I think, at least three times in the first two days. <laughs> I think... I, when, by the time I got back, I, me and Pegasus had a very love-hate relationship. I called the bike Pegasus. Um, but, you know, he became my friend. He was the only one I could talk to on the road, so I talked to Pegasus a lot. You're a best-selling author with two books, Not Without My Sister and the This Road I Ride. You have done a lot of these amazing endurance races and, and done quite well at them, even ag against the men. But... I understand that you're also now a race promoter. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that and, and maybe what's, what's going on now. Mm. Yes. Um, so when I was training to do the Ram, I did a nonstop ride from um, Mount Etna in Sicily to Mount Vesuvio in Napoli. Uh, so going up the length of South Italy uh, in order to train for, you know, basically get my training in. And at the time I thought, wow, this would be a great ride to take, you know, people through to see South of Italy. And since I live here, uh, it's been, you know, one of, one of my goals to bring cyclists to come and see how wonderful it is to cycle in South Italy. This is my playground. Um, the region where I live, it's got it's really rich history, culture, beautiful uh, archaeological sites that I would just pedal by every day. There was no one there. It's amazing. But, you know, you, you go by Pestum and you've got the best preserved Greek temples in the world and nobody knows they're there. So that kind of, and then of course you have amazing food, you have good weather. And I was like, this is a perfect recipe for, you know, bringing cyclists to come and experience this. Um, and actually it was James Hayden who made me kind of push me over the edge to put on a race here. Because he cycled it and he and he said, oh, you should totally put on a race here. And I was like, funny you say that. So he kind of got my my brain just over that little lump of my, I don't know. Um, and after Mike died, I was actually one of the team of organizers who kept the transcontinental race running. And so I managed that for a couple of years. So I got some good experience in how to put on a race. Uh, so yeah, the idea of the, I call it the two volcano sprint and it's called a sprint because they have to ride it as quickly as possible. And it's quite a bit shorter than the average sort of ultra endurance, um, races. It's just about a thousand, two hundred, thousand, one hundred kilometers long. Uh, but it's definitely lived up to its billing of being one of the toughest out there. Um, it's, uh, if you finish it, you are a badass. <laughs> it's a really difficult course. Um, but I take people through some of the highlights, the best climbs, the best uh, scenery, the, you know, they get a bit of everything. They get a good taste of the, the culture, the people, 
Um, and the race itself supports the local communities. So, I mean, 100% of the rider fees goes towards our foundation, which promotes um, cycling, not cycling necessarily, but uh, eco-sustainable projects that are run or put on by locals in uh, South Italy. Uh, so during COVID, for example, we were able to uh, donate uh, 8,000 kilos of uh, goods towards the food banks for people who had lost their jobs and um, 100 computers to children who had to study from home in the poorest uh, communities. And um, we've been able to do a lot to, to with just putting on this race, you know, and, and not just that, but it's it's really rallied the, the local communities around the race. And I get so many uh, messages of thanks that we put the race through their little village or nobody ever comes and they have no one, you know, within one day they get more business than they do in a month. So um, it's been also nice for riders because they get such a wonderful, warm welcome from the South Italians. It just They just love the, obviously love the idea of people going and doing crazy adventures. So um, yeah, so this was the third year we just finished the event. You can see how tired I am. <laughs> I'm still catching up on my sleep deprivation. So, it's, it's, it's actually worse following the race in the race vehicle than cycling. You get all kinds of FOMO, but, <laughs> um, but you, you, you get the sleep deprivation without the joy of riding it. So, you know, it's even more difficult for me psychologically. But anyway, um, it's got a wonderful community around it. It's growing every year. So, yeah, that's what I've been busy with on my free time. Juliana, that sounds uh, fantastic. We want to say thanks a million times for being our guest. It was actually eye-opening, fascinating, entertaining, inspiring, all of it. And really, I guess I can talk for Bobby and Mark as well. We can't wait to have you back after your next adventure. Then we can talk about that again and maybe talk a little bit about more how do you actually train for that. But we just want to say thanks a million for being our guest. It was absolutely fantastic to have you tonight. It was absolutely my pleasure and a lot of fun to talk to you both. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Juliana. You take care. Well, that's all the time we have for this week, folks. Huge thanks to Juliana for being our guest. Thanks a million for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Please be kind enough to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens, and please share your cycling stories with us. Before we go, a quick word from our sponsor, Zwift. One of the most fun parts about cycling is climbing. So why not try Garrett Thomas's athlete workout, Fun is Flying Uphill. A great pillar of any climber is muscular endurance. And believe me when I say, that's what you'll get. Testing yourself on training plans alongside world-class cyclists is what makes Zwift so exciting. I can't wait to show my friends the fitness I built at home. All you need is a bike, trainer, and the Zwift app. Visit Zwift.com and I'll see you on there soon. Ride on.